Jack Edwards brought to you by Norfolk Power Equipment, Lord and Taylor's men's department. Now I know where all the damn ties are coming from. And 495 <laughs> Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. Jack, name that artist. Dale. Uh, Jack or Dale, name that artist. <laughs> Give me a guess. Uh, Mocha no Milkshake. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's all right. Hello, Jack. How are you doing, Dale? Happy birthday to you, by well, the way. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's, it's a birthday. It, Today's it was, your birthday? It was uh, Monday. Monday. Days ago. Monday was, was his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. How do yeah. we not know this? We should have something for Jack. Cake. <laughs> yeah, pie in the face. <laughs> Isn't broadcasting funny? You know, it almost sounds like you guys have done this show before. A couple times. A couple times. <laughs> a couple <laughs> times. <laughs> Thought at least it. the last week or so or thereabouts. Hey, we were just talking about Jerome Aginla, and all of us are of the opinion that the Bruins, uh, they may not need to, quote, unquote, Resign Jerome Ginla, but I'm there's no doubt in my mind they will. Your opinion? Is there a line that you would trade those three guys for, Lucic, Krejci, and Aginla, elsewhere in the NHL? There isn't for me. Yeah, Kane and Taze and whoever would be close, but yeah, I, I like this line a lot. Because, you know, for instance, uh, where the heck were we? Phoenix, maybe? Aginla had that shift where he was in the attacking zone for a minute and 48 seconds. That's a triple shift. And it's not like he was just scooting around, leaning on his stick. He was plastering guys. He was laying guys out on the boards, winning puck battles, racing across the ice, keeping the puck from going out of the zone, taking a hit to move the puck. I mean, the guy plays such a Boston Bruins brand of hockey. It's not about the records that he's setting or the guys like Johnny Busick that he's passing on the all-time list. It's about W's. And, you know, I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but uh, if the Bruins are so fortunate, as to uh, be able to win that thing again, that's the handoff. You know, the question's always, you know, after the captain gets it, who gets it next? There's no question about it that Jerome McGinley is the handoff. Is that guy. right? Really? Oh, yeah. That's because it's it's always like, does it go it's to an alternate captain? It's always a guy captain, who's tried captain, so hard for right. so long. Like Ray Bork getting the getting the, the cup passed to him by Joe Sackett. You know, I mean that that's that's always the question. And, and it, it got to the uh, it got to the final once with uh, with Calgary, but seventh it, game beat by yeah. Tampa Bay. Yeah, seventh game in the ultimate clutch and grab era. You know, every once in a while, NHL Network shows the 4 Stanley Cup final. Ginla gets fouled at least four times a shift, and there's no call. It's like hooking, holding, interference, you name it. They did anything they could to slow the guy down. He still had an unbelievable final. Yeah. I want to ask both of you guys this. Uh, Jack and Dale, the, uh, the and, and no no disrespect, uh, Mutt, but the hockey gurus, Jack and Dale, uh, and Mutt, if you have some insight on this question, I'm, please, I'm listening. Let's please, go. Get please, to the question. please jump in. Let's go. Is there something you saw from Jerome Ginla, or something you've seen this year that you didn't know he had in his game in his repertoire? I mean, you guys have been watching him for a long time, but seeing him every day, I'm sure there's a wrinkle or two that can, that was a revelation to you. It wasn't so much a revelation, but an affirmation of the incredible consistency that the guy has. And it's not about the goals he scores, because he went through a few stretches, especially early on, where he was not that productive in terms of goal scoring. But his work ethic and his work rate never slacked. And that was so that was it for me. I think the thing for me, um, and, and I knew from afar that he had this reputation, but until you see it day in and day out, I didn't realize the leadership yeah. that he brought to the table. I think he has he, he has single-handedly been the beacon of an example for Milan Lucic. This yeah. is how you're prepared to play every day. Yeah. This is what you bring to the table every night. And Milan Lucic has brought it to the table almost every night this year. And he started in the playoffs last year, to his credit. 
But I think I think Jerome McGinley has shown Milan this is how you do it. And you know that that's a really interesting idea that you bring up, and and I haven't heard someone voice it before. But but if you if you think that through, much in the way that we were talking about Matt Duchesne the other night, where where Matt Duchesne's a, a really young player, I think he's twenty two. Yeah. But and a he's terrific player. But he's an old school guy. He's the kind of guy that would sit around the dressing room till four in the morning, listening to hockey stories and anecdotes and tendencies of players because you never know when one little nugget like that is going to pay off for you. Maybe it's 10 years down the line. This used to be just de rigueur in baseball. You know, guys would just stay in the clubhouse. And and Brick was mentioning how that kind of went away when these guys became walking international corporations. But Aginla is an old-school guy, and Lucic definitely has a lot of that old school in him. And it's interesting you say that, Dale, because, because Lucic – has shown those little tiny things in his game that have been different this year, that have given him um, more productivity when the points aren't coming. And that hasn't been too often for him yeah. this year. But but he's doing those little things so well. Real quick on again, last year it was fashionable to point out his failures with Pittsburgh and say, go, we're glad the Bruins didn't get him. Well, this year... The, the, th- the theory is, Jack, that he is more comfortable and he's playing better because he's adopted the city more than with Pittsburgh. That it was a rush and that he got his roots down in Boston, and because of that, he is more comfortable. Do you believe that is a part of why you've seen a better player this year than you saw in the playoffs last year with Pittsburgh? It's a part. Uh, my guess, though, is that uh, it's more the system and the style of the two teams. Uh, Pittsburgh's the most top-heavy team in the National Hockey League. It has to be. That's the way they've built the franchise. And they're doing okay so far. You know, they've won a cup with this core, and uh, they're going to contend for another cup this year. They're capable of winning it again this year. Um, But Boston is much more roll the four lines, outwork them, crush teams under your weight in the third period. And, you know, in the last three weeks, that's exactly what the Bruins have been doing. And Aginla has been a flag bearer in that kind of march. What was the best thing you uh, took away from the the, the 12-game winning streak? Uh, Different ways to win. you know, whether it's a, a hot goalie surviving a bad first period. You know, the Bruins went through that extraordinary streak. What was it, like eight consecutive games not allowing a first-period goal against? Patrice had the first goal of the game in all three games on the road yeah. trip. Uh, that was, a, that was a, an interesting point, yeah. yeah. And, they, that's, and that's, you know, just whoever, whoever has the turn to lead will lead. And whether that's Gregory Campbell, you know, getting in a fight and winning it against a guy he probably shouldn't have beat. Uh, or, uh, you know, Thornton scoring a goal off of Paye's sensational wheeling zinger of a, uh, of a centering pass, or, uh, you know, the studs delivering in the clutch. It's different ways to win. I don't, think, I don't think he'll win because he arrived too late. But I can't tell you how Kevin Miller's game has grown on me, game wow. by game by game. And we were at the game the other night. You were there Monday. I was there. Brick, uh, Jamie, we were all just there as fans the other night. And I turned to Brick after the fight with uh, Travis Moan, <laughs> and I said, when video of this gets around the league, nobody's going to want to go in the corner with him. So true. So true. I mean, that was as hard as I've seen a guy punched all season oh. long. And he did it twice. And Travis Moan is not exactly a you know, wallflower yeah. of a guy. He's a, he's a tough player. You know, he was Thornton's teammate when they won the Cup in Anaheim in 07. He was part of that Im- immense grinder line that they had. And, uh, yeah. For him to get dropped twice in one bout was pretty impressive stuff. Kevin Miller's been a huge surprise. You know what? He he could win seventh player. It's coming up fast, but he could win. Yeah. I, I would give it to Soderbergh. But Miller, he's part of a conversation. You asked about the, the winning streak. The fact they're able to have this winning streak, Jack, and 
rotate defensemen on basically a nightly basis, and Claude has been able to mix and match pairs, get guy re- get guys rested. By the way, not play Chara crazy minutes in the last yeah. ten games at the trading deadline. Three games out of the ten, he's played twenty six or more minutes. And by the way, you won uh, all but one of those games. And I, if you would have told me they'd be rotating guys in and out, not playing Chara, I would have said. Okay, then they have a, maybe have a winning record, but they wouldn't go twelve and one or ten and one, nine and one, whatever it is since the trading deadline. What kind of luxury is that for for Claude to be able to mix and match? And what kind of benefit will it have come playoff time? Looking at these different pairings. Well, you know, we spin it back a year, and uh, when they had to call up Barkowski and Krug, everybody's going, "Ah, well, they got no chance now." That's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> they got to play those two plus Dougie Hamilton <laughs> yeah. against yeah. the Rangers. Yeah. See ya. Yeah, nice run while it lasted, and and uh, so you know, hats off uh, to the coaching staff, uh, Bruce Cassidy and uh, Kevin Dean in Providence for getting those guys ready, and and hats off to Peter Shirelli for for uh, so quickly developing the kind of institutional depth that, by the way, Pittsburgh has. Because the way Pittsburgh runs its team is it's got its top two lines, its top two sets of defensemen, and then everybody else. Is you know well I'm exaggerating here, but but a lot of the other players are just rotating because there are guys in Wilkes-Barre who are just as good who are if there isn't production from those bottom six forwards and bottom pair of D, they know there are guys who are just as good as them who might be a little hungrier down in Wilkes-Barre and uh, you know maybe the Bruins had to address that but Shirelli addressed it quickly. It's a great luxury, Mike. It's a I, great luxury. I have a two-part question for you. John Dennis speaking. Uh, but no, but this is easy. <laughs> Part one is going to be very short, and I think he knows where it's going. What is the most demanding position in sports? Defenseman in the National oh, Hockey League, without that. a okay. question. All right. As so, every school child knows. Uh, everybody knows that. <laughs> All right, so part two. And Kluzak will tell you about <laughs> every <laughs> single time. What is the likelihood of Dennis Seidenberg, these reports, and Pierre Maguire oh. was the first one to put it out there. I almost called this morning when they All brought right. it up. What's the likelihood of Dennis Seidenberg returning for the playoffs? I would say zero, but I've been wrong before. And, and here's why. Remember Jerry Rice and, and how quickly he came back from a blown ACL? What did he blow it out in the first or second week of the NFL season? Then he made this miraculous comeback, and he hit all his numbers in therapy, and they said, you're good to go. And then he had a non-contact blowout of the same knee in the end zone. Remember that? Mm-hmm. It was on a Monday night football game. Yep. I think it was the primetime game for sure. Um. I had the good fortune when I was working at that four-letter beast in Bristol, Connecticut, to, uh, to be in the operating room when Dick Stedman, the famous uh, ACL reconstruction pioneer. You said good fortune? Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> okay. uh, when, when Peekaboo Street had her reconstruction done in Vail, Colorado, and, and, he allowed us, and Peekaboo allowed us to shoot the operation. It's amazing. It's like wood shop in there, but, I mean, just way, way, way more precise. Seidenberg had what's known as a patellar tendon splice ACL correction, okay, ACL reconstruction. And what they do is they measure the middle third of the patellar tendon. If you put your hand on your knee and you slide it down forward, there's that little indentation where it's kind of soft until you flex your quad muscles, your thigh muscles, and then that tendon tightens up. That's what keeps you from falling on your face every single time you take a step forward, if, if not for the patellar tendon, Okay. They take the middle third of that, which is just an enormously strong tendon, and they take a chip out of your tibia, a chip out of the top of the bottom of your patella, which is your, your kneecap, and they send that in through the bottom of your femur into the top of your tibia, all right, the femur being the thigh bone, the tibia being the weight-bearing bone of the lower leg. And, and they use the little chips from drilling the holes 
and tap them in around the bone ends that are on that patellar tendon, okay? They put that sucker in place. When the bones grow back uh, into that hole, and you've now got the middle third of your patellar tendon as your new ACL, that sucker is as strong as anything. However, the patellar tendon needs to grow back. And that was Jerry Rice's problem, that the patellar tendon isn't strong enough. And, And you ask a lot of guys who go through patellar tendon splice surgeries. That is the most painful and difficult part of getting the strength back. And there isn't a whole lot that will make that grow back other than just time. And, you know, yeah, sports medicine has come a long, long, long way. Dennis Seidenberg is an incredibly valuable asset to the Boston Bruins. I don't know if you take the risk of blowing up a guy's career. I mean, what if Derek Englund, what if he comes back in the Eastern Conference Final and Derek Englund falls across the same knee that Corey Conacher fell across? Good night. End of career. I'm going to respectfully disagree with my friend Jack. First Excellent. Of all, it, well, that's what makes if talk you radio had, go. If you've got a medical school response like Jack no, does, God, let's no, say, no, let's no, say. no, no, no. He's out of my league in that regard. I never got to see Peekaboo Street's knee laid open. I'm, I'm going to respectfully disagree to this extent. And Jack knows this better than I do, by the way. Uh, Dennis Seidenberg is a freak. Yeah. He well, is that's a true. freak. That's uh, true. He, you know, in the same way, Adrian Peterson is a freak in the National Football League and came back sooner than anybody expected because of that. I know, and you know this to be true, and now that it's public, uh, he's been working out for a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, according to Cam Neely, he's skating now. Yeah. Now it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, and he's the one who told his friends on the Carolina Hurricanes, I think I'm going to be back for the playoffs. Now, whether that's just the carrot dangling at the end of the stick, but it's really unnecessary for them to do that because, first of all, he's going to bust his rear end anyway. Oh, yeah. And second of all, if you're talking about next October, you got plenty of time. He doesn't plan on playing next October. He plans on playing. Now, I'm not saying In late first May. round of the playoffs. That's not what we're discussing here at all. Right. I think he feels that if they got a couple of rounds into this thing, if they got to an Eastern Conference final, he could give them some. Yep, and, and uh, you know, there would be rust. But, um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going uh, to play the conservative card on it. It'll be yeah. really interesting to see how it plays out. You know one thing. The guy will have to be carried away from the ice if, if he thinks he's right and he's hit his numbers. Well, and that's my question. My knee hurts when you start talking about that yeah. surgery. Yeah. <sighs> Who makes this decision, Jack? I mean, well, I, I, is, it, is it 50-50 he and the medical staff? Can they hone him in if he wants to come back and play and they're concerned like you are that that patella tendon is not growing back? Well, you don't, think, you don't, think, you don't think Jack Edwards is on the medical well, staff? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just hear him? Yeah, no, he's basically the team doctor. Well, one, of the, one of the greatest surgeons in the world, Peter Asnes, did the surgery. So that's, I mean, you, you start with that is that he's got the absolute best chance to to make a healthy comeback at whatever time he makes it. Um, we have seen in the Bruins a very conservative approach. Um, you know, they, they probably could have pushed Bergeron back in when he was coming back from the, from the concussion and they were making a deeper and deeper run. They didn't. They, they have on many occasions held a guy back. Um, for concern for him, and not just in the concussion scenarios. Um, they're not going to put a player's livelihood and career at undue risk. But, yeah, the, you know, from the surgeon to the therapist, Scott Waugh, to Don Del Negro, the head athletic trainer, um, 
you know, I'm sure the Derek Rapucci, the uh, the team, uh, uh, what do you call it, a masseuse? Yeah. Uh, is, uh, you know, I'm sure he's working on Seidenberg, too. And they're asking him, you know, do you feel anything that's not feeling right? I mean, I mean they, they are extraordinarily thorough. Peter Shirelli leaves no details uh, to chance. No I, truth to the rumor, by the way, that when Jack was watching the Peekaboo Street operation, <laughs> he was saying, get up! No truth to the rumor. He didn't, he didn't once do that, I'm just saying. Now, believe it or not, I'm going to be able to tie Bill Belichick into this conversation. But you're going to have to stay tuned to see how. Skating a little four-on-four here in this segment. Dale Arnold, Michael Holly, Mike Mitnansky, and Jack Edwards all together here. Earlier today at the uh, owners' meetings in Orlando, Florida, the National Football League, I guess it's the competition committee that decides these things. Uh, the competition committee heard a presentation from Patriots head coach Bill Belichick who was trying to sell them on the possibility of a, a rule change that he advocates. In the last decade, uh, we haven't seen a missed field goal uh, from under 19 yards. That's been 100%. The per PAT percentages uh, in the last two decades have not gone below 98%. And I want to say in six of the last nine years, they've been over 99%. Last year was 99.6 or whatever it was. Um, so we're really talking about a non-competitive play. I can't imagine the fans are excited about seeing a play that's 99%, 99.6% accurate. I personally feel that we've also made it virtually illegal to block a kick. Uh, we can't hit the center. We can't overload. We can't push. We can't jump. We can't land on anybody, so it's it's very, very difficult to competitively play the play. Um, the proposal was to the 25-yard line, which uh, puts those kicks in the 88, 85% range, somewhere in there, which we felt was a more competitive play, not married to that yard line in particular. Uh, just say the general concept behind the proposal is to make it a more competitive play than 99.6 percent. I'd also just say on a personal level, I think the replay rules are very lengthy, obviously, and confusing. Uh, you know, and of course, before every game, the officials come over to us and talk about, uh, you know, remind us what can and can't be reviewed and the times they have to talk to each other about that. Uh, it's, you know, four pages of, of rules on replay. Uh, I don't really know them, and I should, but I mean, it's it's hard for me because they change. Uh, I, I can't imagine the fans know them. I mean, the announcers don't know them. It's a pretty complicated system, and uh, this would simplify it, which I think would also be in the best interest of the game. Now, as riveting as that was, <laughs> and it's hard to believe that anyone would vote against anything that, that might have been advocated there, there is a way. There is actually a way. You could have spiced it up a little. In the last decade, we haven't seen a missed field goal from under 19 yards. That's been 100%. The PAT percentages in the last two decades, the last two decades, have not gone below 98%. And I want to say six of the last nine years, they've been over 99%. Last year, 99.6 or whatever it was. So we're really talking about a non-competitive play. I can't imagine the fans are excited about seeing a play that is 99%, 99.6% accurate. I personally feel that we've also made it virtually 
illegal to block a kick. We can't hit the center, we can't overload, we can't push, can't jump, can't land on anybody. So it's very difficult competitively to play the play. The proposal was the 25-yard line, which puts those kicks in the 88 to 85% range, somewhere in there, which we felt was a more competitive play. Not married to that yard line in particular, just say the general concept behind the proposal was to make it a more competitive play than 99.6%. I also just say on a personal level. I think the replay rules are very lengthy, obviously, and confusing. And of course, before every game, the officials come over to us and talk about, remind us what can and can't be reviewed, and the times they have to talk to each other about that. Four pages of rules on replay. I don't really know them, and I should, but it's hard for me because they change. I can't imagine the fans know them. I mean, (laughs) the announcers (laughs) don't know them. It's a pretty complicated system, and this would simplify it, which I think would be in the best interest of the game. Your Honor, the prosecution rests. And they still knocked it down. Because it wasn't presented properly. Yeah, it's, it's, all it's, all version. it's all delivery. It's still not it. <laughs> you are, yeah, it was a fantastic delivery, Jack. But you're dealing with people who have made up their minds already. They've made up their minds about what they want and what they don't want. And so they don't care about the entertainment value. You know, while I was across the hall with Bill Smith I, I recording that, I, I felt like Bill Belichick was my Cyrano de Bergerac. You know, I felt like he was... He was writing the poetry, and all I had to do all you was had to, to do is just yeah, the content of what deliver. he's saying is dead on. He's right. Now, now I, I know this is way, way, way outside the box, and the first reaction to change is almost always negative. But consider this: consider this, that all points after touchdown have to be from the 25-yard line, and the only stipulation is that you've got to have at least two offensive players five or more yards behind the line of scrimmage. That being maybe the kicker and the holder, okay? One point for a kick, four points for getting the ball across the goal line by pass or by run. Now, if you're a TV executive about to roll out another $9 billion check or whatever (laughs) it is, think about it. If a team is down by nine and they've got the ball, you hold the audience. It's not a two-score game. Four points? From the 25-yard line. It's such a low percentage play, but come on. you got to think about it. Just think about it. Don't just just out of hand. Just don't say, that's I, dumb. I, I am thinking about it. Because it's got to be more than a field goal. It's got to be more worth more than a field goal. It's a 25, one play, 25 yards for four points or a kick for one. Now you actually have to think about but it. But you have to present the Belichick camp. That is a terrible... <laughs> <laughs> Terrible sales job by Belichick. I, I'm trying to compare. Like, if, if you two walked into my home to sell me a vacuum cleaner, they would say, do it this way, Bill. And they'd bring him into the sales office and play you selling it. And I, you might be able to sell me on a four-point play. But why do, you, why, why do you have to sell it at all? Because it makes sense. Even if he said, I'm not going to say anything here. Read this piece of paper. Hey, you know, take a couple of minutes, guys, and read this. This is what I have to say. If he just emailed his thoughts or, or, or if he just wrote them down. CC right. rules committee. Okay. It makes sense, doesn't it? Why do you have to sell the NFL? I mean, right. I love the sell job, but why do you have to sell them on this? It makes so much sense. The right. trouble is they didn't accept all the things that he was talking about either. I right. mean, common sense things like no overtime in preseason. 
How could that even be a vote? Right. How did they not just say, you know what? Overtime in preseason is really dumb. <laughs> yeah, it's just dumb. We're just going to drop it. How do but they, they not have? Do it. How do they not have cameras in the end zones? On the pylons. How can you not have cameras on the pylons? Because they don't have any money. The league is going poor, Michael. (laughs) They don't have any money to get this (laughs) stuff done. We need a bake sale and a car wash, like Belichick said. And the commissioner Uh, makes – how much does the commissioner make again? $40 million. $40 million last year. year. Yeah. They don't have any money. I'm glad it's a non-profit. I'm glad it's a non-profit. I mean, hockey can only hope to be a major sport like that, Jack. Because, you know I'm tweaking Jack over here. Although, I will say this. The NFL is centralizing replay review, which yep. follows whose lead? The National exactly Hockey right. League. Thank and you. you and you guys right. know this. You guys know this from working on TV. I mean, TV, you, know, you don't make any money from TV. They don't pay all that well. So when, when Bob Kraft uh, brags about of the 35 top programs last year, 34 were, were NFL-related, okay, how do you say that and talk about the best TV deal in sports and you don't have the money to put cameras in the pylons. I think they ought to have a camera in every blade of artificial turf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will be back to work tomorrow night. You bet. Those damn people from NBC aren't taking this game from us. <laughs> Thank goodness. I was just teasing Jack. Texter, well, speaking of teasing, Texter says, Jack, when was the last time you were at an NFL stadium? You cannot comment on this. <laughs> if they're listening. Jack, good to see you. I'll see you tomorrow Thanks. night. Great to see you, Dale. Uh, we've Michael, got m- much more to come in just a couple of minutes. Uh, 617-779-7937 is the telephone number. The AT&T text line 37937, Sports Radio WEEI.